This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly uh, this morning. He's uh, off, taking a few days off. Uh, and uh, what a weekend he missed up at uh, the Mile One or uh, Mary Brown Center. Congratulations to Terry Ryan skating professionally with the Growlers on his 47th birthday after the team was struck with a stomach bug. Uh, even dropping the gloves and giving the fans what they want. Well done, Terry. And uh, I usually try to uh, take in a, a Growlers game whenever they're playing locally. And um, we had such a jam-packed weekend this weekend. I took a pass on it. Uh, but, uh, wow, really wish I had been up there for that uh, this weekend. Uh, well done, Terry. And we've heard lots from Terry over the last uh, 24 hours or so. Um, yeah, any thoughts on that? Why, why don't you give us a call? Well, this is a uh, big, inter- uh, not an international, well, yeah, sort of. Uh, national story that's been making headlines in recent days. Uh, Federal Immigration Minister Mark Miller looking at the possibility of capping the number of international students living in Canada in light of a continued housing crisis across the country for years. Universities and provincial governments, including Newfoundland and Labrador and Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador, have been relying heavily on international students to help boost immigration. The federal government's targets have been ambitious with a goal of bringing in close to half a million immigrants this year and even higher numbers next year and into 2026. The Canadian population grew to 40 million people in 2023. That's an increase of 10 million in just 25 years. For years there have been concerns about the country's aging demographics and the labor crunch but the country is now facing a housing shortage. Miller says he's not looking at a one-size-fits-all solution to the housing shortage by placing a cap on temporary international students, but it is something that Ottawa is giving consideration to. Well, if they do that, what will the impact be on universities, including Memorial University, which has been aggressively recruiting international students in recent years? What will the impact be on this province, which has one of the oldest demographics in the country and is finally seeing some uh, increases in its population for the first time, things starting to turn around a little bit? If you have any thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. We wouldn't mind hearing from uh, uh, Minister Responsible for Immigration here in Newfoundland and Labrador Jerry Byrne on that topic as well. But yeah, Memorial has been aggressively recruiting international students in recent years. And uh, ostensibly, that's what's keeping uh, tuition fees down for uh, provincial students. But if that is capped and the university faces, you know, um, another way to, to raise funds, we'll say, what will that mean for tuition 
anyway, it's uh, all far-reaching, I know, but if you have any thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. Well, uh, many parts of the country facing a big deep freeze in recent days, Alberta in particular. Uh, the um, weather has been putting an added strain on the power grid there. It brings back an awful lot of memories of dark and L, doesn't it, when the temperature dipped that time and we had a number of um, sort of a perfect storm, if you will, of um, uh, availability on the grid and that sort of thing, uh, capacity on the grid. Um, are we prepared now for a sudden and deep dip in temperatures? It's also, uh, this situation has also helped to illustrate some of the limitations of relying solely on electrical power, which is something that the Alberta Premier has been uh, tweeting about. What are the solutions to that? Um, we are going to continue to see from time to time these uh, deep dips, the polar vortex, uh, you know, snaking its way down into the heart of North America. So um, uh, is relying solely on electricity the answer, especially in larger centers? Anyway, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. What are the long-term solutions? Um, government is looking at establishing speed cams more broadly across the province, but there are some serious uh, issues to consider first. We had Minister Sarah Studley on the show uh, last week talking about this. One of the implications is the, poten the potential administrative burden. Um, their pilot project, a three-month pilot project, which was um, established in Mount Pearl and Paradise over the summer months, logged 94,000 drivers driving 11 kilometers or more over the speed limit. Now, these are in residential areas. So how do you implement a program like that without bogging down the entire system? Just imagine now if you had to issue 94,000 tickets. So where do you establish the uh, parameters on that? How does it get done? Uh, Sarah Studley says one of the things they're looking at is trying to make sure that the system, system is as automated as possible. Um, but they're also uh, looking very seriously at having the speed cams established uh, in other parts of the province this year, sometime this year. So there's a lot of um, things that have to be done before that's established. Anyway, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Uh, myself and Jerry Lynn Mackey, just before the uh, program, were just uh, talking a little bit about marine Atlantic disruptions. Uh, it's another dirty day out on the West Coast today uh, with high winds and such. And of course, that, uh, in addition to having uh, impacts on general transportation, it also has a huge impact, of course, on marine Atlantic operations. And marine Atlantic uh, is coming right out and saying it's feeling the impact of climate change uh, when cancelled crossings become more and more of a concern. And you don't need to look very far to see what the impacts of that are. If you go to your local store and you're looking for something that hasn't come in yet or you're waiting on a part for some reason or another or uh, some other method, guess what? It comes in via Marine Atlantic nine times out of ten. So uh, Gulf Ferries tied up again this past weekend due to high winds and storm surge on the southwest coast. Marine Atlantic spokesman Daryl Mercer says there's been an increase in the frequency of weather-related cancellations of late. He says people who are familiar with the weather in the region will admit that climate change is becoming increasingly evident. He says longtime crew members noticing the storm systems are much more frequent and powerful than they used to be. He says they're trying their best to adapt, but ultimately, 
the issue lies with Mother Nature, and she's going to do what she's always done, which is surprise us from time to time. So um, how do you mitigate that, especially for people like us here in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, who are... Uh, residents of the island anyway, um, isolated from the rest of North America and having to rely on marine traffic to get things here. Speaking of relying on marine traffic, it's very alarming to see the escalating international scene and what's happening in the Middle East with the airstrikes in uh, Yemen now, um, led by the U.S. and the U.K. to try and um, quell whatever is happening with the uh, Iran-backed uh, Houthis who have been disrupting um, global, international um, marine traffic for uh, quite some time now. And that's having an impact as well. So uh, just when we're starting finally to start to see albeit very small, um, some um, inflation starting to drop a little bit. Uh, Could we start to see inflation rise again due to these combined factors, either uh, because of global uh, geopolitical situations or uh, because of the weather? Lots to talk about. Uh, If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, the provincial government made two major announcements uh, last week. One was uh, a leasing arrangement to um, house uh, people who are otherwise uh, having difficulty being housed at the uh, Airport Comfort Inn in the East End. And now uh, the provincial government is leasing the old Costco building for a ambulatory care clinic uh, to meet the needs of um, people throughout the region. So uh, a lot of money there, but uh, still not a lot of detail as to how that's going to be, timelines, uh, how it established staffing is another major issue um, that a lot of people are wondering about and asking about. Uh, If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call as well. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you you. Uh, Linda Swain here sitting in for Patty Daly who is off for another couple of days. Uh, Do join us. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. A little bit of a slow start to a Monday morning. Not unusual, I'm told. So, uh, But if you have any thoughts, uh, you know, that have been building up over the course of the weekend, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. We're going to start the show with Colin. Hello, Colin. Good morning, Miss Swain. How are you on this eyes of January? Is it really? 15th, yes. Yes, also known as Caucus Day in Iowa. Uh-huh. Wanted to uh, talk about some legal arguments that are being made south of the border by Mr. Trump in the uh, D.C. Court of Appeals, the second highest court in the United States. And uh, one of those arguments is that he believes that he has the authority to have his political opponents assassinated. Did he say that? You cannot make this up. You know, I would not say this on public radio. This oh. is an argument that's being made currently in the D.C. Court of Appeals. The level of political discourse, um, particularly over the last decade, especially south of the border, but it's creeping you know, around the world now, it is so demoralizing. I can't even uh, express myself about it. But okay. All right. Go on. 
This is a man that has, uh, by the latest polls that I see coming out of Iowa and after a caucus there today, he has about a 28-point lead over Nikki Haley, who's in second place there. And uh, it looks like he's going to get the nomination, you know, when he moves into New Hampshire and then on to uh, South Carolina and the rest of the states throughout the the rest of the uh, winter and the spring. But this is this is the mindset of a man who was president of the United States and who could very well become president of the United States again, that under certain circumstances that he can have his political opponents assassinated. He's making the argument that uh, if he's impeached and uh, unless he's convicted um, uh, in an impeachment trial in the Senate, uh, then he can be prosecuted for uh, certain crimes. But if he's acquitted, uh, the, the acquittal in the impeachment acts as a bar to any criminal prosecution, which is absolutely bonkers also. He's relying on the the Fifth Amendment in the United States Constitution, the double jeopardy provision, that you can't be tried twice for the same level of crime by the same sovereign or by the same um, prosecuting authority. And uh, that is clearly not what the Fifth Amendment means. It's uh, the Fifth Amendment double jeopardy provision prevents you from being tried twice for the same offense, criminal offense. A, uh, an impeachment hearing and an acquittal, as was given to him by two trials in the Senate, that, that has nothing to do with criminal prosecutions. That's a political uh, decision made by the United States Congress, right? It is um, some sort of uh, reform necessary? Um, you know, now that the United States has had time to, you know, sort of contemplate all of this over the last little while? I would agree. Yeah, I, I, I think reform will be necessary, but you got to look at the people who would have to make the reform. And the people who make the reform are the people in the Congress, uh, in the House, which is controlled currently by the Republicans. Uh, they are hook, line, and sinker. They're following Trump, and he's going to get that nomination. So if he gets that nomination, uh, they're going to fall in line behind him, no matter what they may think individually. Uh, he's going to be the leader of that party again, right? And whatever he says goes. And if he becomes president in November and he wins the election and he gets a second term starting in January of next year, I just uh, I just got to shake my head. It's it's the mentality of the man, irrespective of what you think of, of you know conservative policies or liberal policies, uh, politics, no matter where you are in the political spectrum. You got to look at the the what's going on inside the man's head. He has called in the past for the assassination of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley. You know, he just these things seem to pop into his head, and he just uh, spits them out on social media or in television interviews or online in some other form. And uh, he has a twenty-eight point lead. I, I was Iowa caucus today, right? Reading a piece the other day, which was, um, you know, republished, I suppose, after a number of years, um, from some of his uh, staffers, uh, high-ranking staffers, who actually had to remove documents from his desk for fear that he would see them and react. Yeah. They, they were trying to avoid global incidents. Yeah. 
the argument that's being made in the Court of Appeals, and this is going on right now, and, and he's being his lawyers are making this argument. And the three judge panel of the D.C. Court of Appeals is questioning his lawyers, saying so that uh, hypothetically, the, the president of the United States could order SEAL Team 6, which is an elite commando unit of the United States Navy, to assassinate political opponents. And that would be OK. This is a, this is a question being posed by appellate court judges to his lawyers. And his lawyers are saying yes. That just, I don't even know what to call that, that we're at a stage in the United States political discourse and politics down there that you have a leading candidate for one of the two major um, political parties who could become president in about a year, that he's actually making these arguments to appellate court levels. And this could even go on up to the Supreme Court of the United States, this argument, depending on how it turned out in the appellate court. I mean, really? And the United States was always seen as a beacon to people trying to escape from countries that had those types of, uh, you know, policies. Yeah, banana republic. You know, you don't like your opponent, you have him killed. This is what happens in uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia, right? And, and this is the argument that's being made, and, and he's, if you criticize him, it's just he gets more and more support. And more and more money going into his campaigns. And again, like I said, it's not about what you think of his policies or the Republican Party and conservatism or, or liberalism or whether you're a centrist or you're a socialist or whatever. You, we can all debate politics and tax cuts versus bigger government, smaller government, less regulation, more regulation. But we're talking about killing people who disagree with your point of view. I just find that absolutely bonkers. We're in a, we're in a, I don't know, I can't explain it. The, 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 the age we're in is certainly uh, very different from the, um, where we were just, uh, you know, a quarter of a century ago. This is being normalized, right? If 25 years ago, or not even that long ago, I guess 10 years ago, if you had a, a leading candidate for one of the two main political parties down there advocating for the assassination of political opponents, that, that making the argument that a sitting president of the United States could use a branch of the military, SEAL Team 6 or the CIA or some other branch of government, to actively seek out and kill political opponents, that would just cause an outrage. There's no way this person would, would, would be leading any leading in any caucus or primaries going into a presidential election, much less get get a nomination. And now this is just normalized. It's just shrug your shoulders and yeah, that's Trump, but I still support him. You know? What what's going on here? And if he wins, our country and other allies are gonna to have to deal with him. I mean and all the other stuff too, he wants to pull the United States out of NATO and other things that are equally bonkers. But this is what's going on down there. And we need to pay attention to what's going on down there because what happens down there affects us. Absolutely. We share the longest, what, de unmilitarized border <laughs> in the world with them? Absolutely. He's, um, he's a very dangerous man. His thought processes are 
you could have a team of psychiatrists examining him and they wouldn't be able to figure out what's going on with him, much less anybody who's uh, not a mental health expert. But I don't know. The, the most dangerous thing is, is that he's, he's getting more and more support. You know, he, he's called for the termination of the United States Constitution. He said that in rallies, and people are cheering that. You want, you want the supreme law terminated. He's advocating for termination of the United States Constitution. So that means uh, martial law, whatever he says goes, if he's president, your rights are gone. You have no rights. And people are cheering that. So what do you suppose is behind that level of popularity, um, you know, especially, especially given, you know, the very real consequences that that could result in? I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, in the, in the age of uh, artificial intelligence now and misinformation and disinformation and anybody can put any kind of information on a website and it can be, you know, um, uh, relayed and, 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 and copied and, and uh, tweeted out and retweeted and things like that. The most outrageous, the most outlandish purported facts that are patently untrue become true if enough people believe it. And it gets repeated often enough. And this is what's happening down there. I don't think people are doing the deep dive into the ramifications of what he's saying. You know, like I said about the United States Constitution, he wants to terminate the United States Constitution, and people are cheering that. How can you cheer that? How can you applaud that? He wants to take away your rights. He wants to turn that country into a militarized zone. An authoritarian a country like Russia, where you have no rights. Everything is run by one man. The courts are run by one man. The police services, the intelligence services are run by one man. Whatever that person says goes. The judges are in the back pocket of the person in charge. You don't have an independent judiciary with security of ten- tenure. You don't have an independent legislative branch of government, you have someone who's at the executive head of government, and they call the shots on everything. And people are going along with that. I don't know. Colin, we're all watching it with uh, great interest. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thanks, Linda. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. We are going to go now to Kirk. You're on the air. Hello, Kirk. Hey, good morning. How are you this morning? I'm trying not to laugh what Colin just said. Okay. I'm just, I just don't get it. you got to stop watching MSNBC, Colin, my song, Big and Scarborough Joe. Don't listen to them. Donald Trump never said anything about getting rid of the Constitution or becoming a dictator or anything else. He actually stands up for it. And not only that, you already got a Biden administration down there trying to lock up his key opponent, all right? And things were a lot better off when Trump was president because he didn't start any new wars. And now you got two wars in Ukraine and in the Middle East, all because of Biden's uh, weakness. And now over in Taiwan, Formosa, you got China rattling their cage. 
Of course, President C is actually Biden's boss. Remember the movie Manchurian Candidate? I never saw it, but... Um, yeah, there's yeah. two versions of it. This is where China, the Chinese Communist Party, brainwashes, brainwashes a Korean War veteran, speed, uh, played by Steve Harvey, to assassinate a leading contender for the president of the United States. And now you got Biden, who's doing presidency's bidding. Not only that, Biden's brains is not all there either, because he weakened the United States with the open board, open borders policy. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Trump myself originally, but what Collins said is just plain fear mongering. I'm sorry, Colin, but I spent time in the Navy, and I served with with, with uh, the fighting CVs and, and and the like. And the Constitution's almost written in the stone. If you're referring to section uh, Article 14, there's two sections of it, three and five, that you need to reread. Only Congress can keep a candidate from ever seeking public office. Not the courts, not a state attorney general like in Maine or Colorado. And the Supreme Court, when they do hear it later on next month, even even professors, constitutional experts, will agree that, that, the, that the decision would be 9-0 that you cannot keep a presidential leading contender for the candidacy off the ballot. The last time that was used was was when 1919, when a social democrat was, uh, was found to be spying for the Germans at that time. And uh, he was kicked off the ballot to, to, to run for uh, Senate. And, and the, the 14th Amendment, which came out after Lincoln's time, was, was supposedly keep the Confederates off from seeking public office. However, it, it never come to pass because when Grant, even in 1872, said, said uh, it was better not to hold a grudge, but to, 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 to use unification. Because many Confederate generals and politicians wound up serving in Congress and Senate, even on the armed selective committees. Now, and, Kirk, that's uh, we're up to a break, but that's not why you called, I understand. Well, oh yeah, that's right. Because last week uh, in Congress, in a congressional dis- disposition, closed our hearing last Wednesday morning, Dr. Fauci admitted that there was zero scientific data that supported social safe distancing for the COVID mandates. So basically, he, in the past four years, he was lying. He didn't know what he was talking about. In other words, millions of people lost 
lost everything based on a lie. And also about the Wuhan lab, which is no surprise to someone like me, that he also admitted that the lab leak theory is quite possible, that it wasn't a conspiracy theory whatsoever. He also testified last Wednesday on that, too, on the origins of COVID and the COVID-19, as we like to call it, the bioweapon. And they're still at it. All right, Kirk, we're overdue for a break. I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. And it's mighty cold in Iowa for the caucuses. Yeah, for sure. Mighty cold. And, and I, I Will that keep people tra- home? I wonder if, no, no, <laughs> no, no, they'll still show up, you got no worries, and they'll they'll select who they want to be running in their primary later on. Right now, the Democratic Party got no primary, because they want to disenfranchise the American people from voting. Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. is running, among others. And 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 they sh- and they want to debate Biden, but Biden cannot debate because he, there's not more word salad that comes out of his mouth. And plus, he's going around shaking hands with ghosts and everything. All right, he he, he he's lost it. Kirk, we have to leave it there. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, you have a good week. Okay, bye. Right. And we're overdue for a break. Uh, we'll be back right after this. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And we are back on VOCM Open Line. uh, Linda Swain sitting in for Patty Daly, who is off for the next couple of days. We are going to go now to the Provincial Minister of uh, Immigration and Skills, Jerry Byrne. Hello. Hi, Linda. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. Yeah, no trouble. Good morning to you. Uh, where are you now? I actually happen to be in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where I am starting today meetings with the 14 cabinet ministers from across the country. Uh, the the uh, 10 provinces, three territories, and the federal minister uh, responsible for labor market, for the labor market situation of our country. Finding jobs, skilling, uh, skilling up Canadians, skilling up Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and we're talking about, uh, largely, we're talking about the labor market development agreements, and those, of course, are the agreements that uh, put Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to sk- to school and to work. Uh, it's a 150 million dollar annual program in our province of Newfoundland and Labrador that uh, that we helped to sponsor to encourage Newfoundlanders and Labradorians uh, to uh, upskill, to get new skills, and to look at the labor market of the future. Well, there's little doubt, I would imagine, then, that uh, the, this whole topic uh, raised uh, recently or, or addressed recently by Federal Immigration Minister Mark Miller, uh, the fact that he's considering the possibility of capping the number of international students living in Canada. Uh, will that come up for discussion? And is it of concern to you as the uh, minister responsible in this province? Well, you know, we have a, an amazing, robust post-secondary education system in our province. Uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are going to College of the North Atlantic, to the private institutions, such as, and I'll just name some, 
uh, Kean College Academy, Canada Eastern Academy. There's all there's many many post secondary institutions in our province that are of the highest quality and standard. And so one of the things that uh, Mark Miller, the uh, federal immigration minister, has proposed is that he has concerns that in other parts of the country, there is some, uh, there's a little bit of hanky-panky going on with some of the institutions. This is what he has said, and said publicly, is that he's concerned about, um, I think actually the word that he used or the phrase that he used was that some provinces have educational puppy mills where they kind of use where their organizations or institutions which are not of the highest of quality that allow for international students to, to apply to them to come to Canada. And it's not necessarily the best experience. So I do not want Newfoundland and Labrador to be caught up in an argument that does not apply to our province. We have the most amazing standards and quality of organizations or institutions in our province. And I don't want uh, the solution to a problem that doesn't exist here to be applied to us. You know, international students, Linda, in our province, really, uh, they just add to the quality of our, of, our, of our educational institutions. They add to the quality of life of, to each and every one of us here. And I certainly do not want uh, a false, you know, I don't want to have a situation where the federal government uh, has a problem in which they're in search, uh, a solution, I should say, where they're in search of a problem for. I want to make sure that that is not the case. So what's the uh, suggestion here, that uh, some universities are not playing by the rules? How is that working? That seems to be the case, is that they're, you know, they're advertising, they're, you know, and again, this is really a conversation for the federal representatives from our province to engage in, uh, because I do not know it's, uh, the mindset of where some of these rules are coming from. I think that in other provinces, you may have situations where you have kind of one door, one door training academies uh, that may be set up. That seems to be the implication that the federal minister is suggesting. That is not the case in Newfoundland and Labrador. We have we we regulate, uh, we monitor, we work directly, cooperatively, and a partnership, but with an oversight role uh, with our post-secondary institutions. And it just sometimes it does seem to me that if there's a problem in other parts. Of, uh, of, of the country don't impose the solutions to a problem that don't exist on us. You know, Linda, I, I will say this. You know, sometimes when people at Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada, IRCC, the federal, the, the federal watchdog of those who come into the country, they sometimes see an application from a student from, from India or from the Philippines or from Africa or, or South America or wherever, and they say that the application for the student visa says that they're going to a place such as Bayvert, Newfoundland, and Labrador to attend a, publicly tra- a, a, a public training institution. And that individual, that IRCC staff member in Ontario, looking at that application says, oh, that's got to be a joke. That, 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 there's no public training institution in Bayvert, Newfoundland that would, uh, you know, there, there's got to be, well, guess what? 
there is and it's a public it's a uh it's part of the college of the north atlantic system we have over 17 campuses across our province and so sometimes student visas are being rejected and i'm just throwing that out as an example it's not necessarily applicable in in every case but i just want to use that just to emphasize and show how how sometimes our province is getting which is doing an amazing job of regulating our post-secondary institutions is getting thrown out with the the babies getting thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak. Well, you know, what we have to do, and this is why I'm always on this, making sure that Ottawa understands don't impose a solution on a problem that does not exist here. And that's really sometimes I think what they do and to do too often. And that's probably what he's referencing when he says he's not looking at a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, so back to, uh, you know, your, uh, your call this morning uh, and from Winnipeg. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, what the labor market situation here is here in Newfoundland and Labrador and, and what kind of solutions you're looking at it addressing, you know, certain gaps. Well, one of the things that we have, we have a great tool, and it's uh, the Labor Market Development Agreements the transfer agreements. Uh, these are funds that are given to provinces uh, that are allocated to provinces across the entire country, provinces and territories. That is the purpose of my meetings here in, in Winnipeg today and tomorrow, talking with all 14 cabinet ministers uh, that are involved in this, uh, in this program. And one of the things, the labor market development agreements, or LMDAs, as they're often known, um, these are funds that come from the EI premiums. So they're, they're not federal government monies. They are uh, funds that are raised from the premiums of employers and employees that pay into the account. And the purpose of these funds, Linda, are to, uh, to make strategic structural adjustments to the labor market to respond to training needs and to work within the labor market, a changing labor market, to make sure that uh, people have access to jobs. And so in Newfoundland and Labrador, Linda, one of the things that we've experienced in recent years, and this is a somewhat of a new phenomenon, is that instead of just a story of, of jobs, you know, people without jobs, we've had in many, many instances jobs without people. We still have situations and circumstances where there are people that uh, that are looking for work that can't find work. These are individuals that we're actively trying to help to upskill, to get the skills that are needed for the new jobs, as well as creating economic opportunities in the communities where 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 people live. But we also have a situation where we actually have jobs without people to fill them. And this is where immigration does come in. This is where international students can come in. And this is where, of course, uh, training. So what we do when we bring in international students, we bring in people who are bringing their own money, their own talents, their own education to fill jobs in Newfoundland and Labrador. And while we here at the Labor Market Minister's meeting, what we're looking to do is spend and exclusively spend that $150 million a year on Newfoundlanders and Labradorians only. So it's a it's a lot of work to be done here to sort of piece all this together, but that's the work that we do. 
And um, uh, Minister Byrne, I noticed uh, and continue to notice that we're continuing to see uh, Ukrainians coming into Newfoundland and Labrador. There were some concerns initially about trying to find them housing and uh, getting them into the the labor market because uh, language skills are one of the challenges uh, that some of them are facing because a lot of them are professionals. Um, So uh, how are we doing with all of that and making sure that they're placed and making sure that uh, they have somewhere to go when they come in it's an amazing it's an amazing story linda it's uh it's a great story it has not it's been a story that has not been without uh without any kind of uh of grist or or friction listen when when you take in when you open armed when you take in people who come from a war savaged country invaded by putin and invaded by russian where their housing crisis where they came from is that their apartment building, their house, the place where they lived was bombed and destroyed and they have nowhere to live and nowhere safe to be. Well, that's the situation that Newfoundland and Labrador responded to. They came with two suitcases to their name. That's it. And we welcome them. And I am very, very proud to say that we welcome now over 3,500 Ukrainians to our province. Uh, Some came by way of the 700 in total came by way of our four special airlifts. But of the 3,500, we had 2,800, 2,800 that came by their own steam. They came because they chose Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada, as the place they wanted to live without any inducement. They chose here because this is an amazing place to live. And I'm really proud to say, Linda, that of the 3,500 that are here, um, they have found housing. They're not in social housing. They're not in Newfoundland and Labrador housing. They're, they're finding places to live in all parts of our province. They're finding jobs in all parts of our province. And they're making an amazing contribution. So, yes, I do understand and, and, and we're always concerned and working to make sure that uh, the housing, the labor, the housing market, the labor market and the people that are here are, are suited, you know, that are that are in sync with each other. Ukrainians are not taking housing away from anyone. In fact, they th- th- there's no one housing market in our province. There is a market for student housing. There's a market for low-income housing. There's a market for high-income housing, like Clow Valley, for example. There's, there's lots and lots of housing markets. Ukrainians are buying houses, uh, family houses, in, many, in, 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 some, in, in some instances, that would be on the market for months if there weren't someone a middle-class family, a Ukrainian family, to come in and to buy them. So I really want to say that and say clearly that we recognize there's housing issues, serious housing issues, and we're dealing with them. Ukrainians are not part of that problem. And so uh, ones that may still be housed in uh, hotel rooms and the like who are being asked, uh, you know, or being told that, uh, you know, their time is drawing nigh, how are they being addressed? Well, we've had uh, we've had Ukrainians. One of the programs that we've had in place is recognizing that when you come to a brand new city, never exposed to before, brand new province, brand new country, that you need a lead time. You need a little bit of adjustment period. So we offer 
up to a maximum of 45 days in temporary accommodation while Ukrainians go and look for housing themselves out into uh, out into the community. And, um, you know, that I can say and, and uh, somewhat boast is that uh, there are very, very few Ukrainians in any temporary housing. And um, we do have some situations which are very, very, you know, very special, great concern, special needs, but very few of those. The 45-day policy is largely being met, and Ukrainians are moving into the community. They're, they're getting housing in the free market uh, out there. And we, yes, we have Ukrainians that are arriving every day to our province, and there may be some chat amongst the community saying that, oh, gosh, the government started this back in 2022. They started, you know, putting Ukrainians in a hotel room. And I pop by that hotel and I still hear Ukrainian voices. So that must mean that those Ukrainians have been there all this time. <laughs> you, you know, Linda, there are Ukrainians that are arriving in Newfoundland and Labrador today. They will be in temporary housing for a short period of time while they look for housing and they will be out and more and new Ukrainians will arrive tomorrow. And that's why there's this constant flow of Ukrainians uh, living in temporary accommodations. But it is just that. It is temporary. Jerry Byrne, I know you have a busy day ahead of you. I really appreciate your time this morning, especially this early in the morning in Winnipeg. But um, uh, do keep us up to date on your discussions uh, there. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate the opportunity. It is cold uh, in Winnipeg yeah. this morning. It's like minus, minus 35, I think, right now. Ooh, uh, I hope you brought your cotton socks. I did indeed, and, and, my, and my mitts, my, right my Rangrin's mitts. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, Galas. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Your woolen socks, I should have said. Uh, we're uh, overdue for a break. Uh, you're listening to VOCM Open Line. And we're back. Uh, we're going to go now to Ryan Cleary. Hello and a Happy New Year. Uh, good morning, Linda, to you and your listeners. Thanks for taking the call. Linda, I know we're halfway into January, but all the best to you and your listeners. VOCM Open Line for 2024. My motto for this year ahead is 24 and so much more. That's a lyric from a Neil Young song. I'm, I'm sure you heard of it. But I look at the year ahead, obviously, with optimism, especially with the commercial, where the commercial fisheries are concerned. But it's going to take a hell of a lot of work, Linda. Um, that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about the commercial fisheries um, in 2024, looking ahead. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's start with, uh, you know, your changing role and all of that sort of thing, because you you had been uh, the executive director for CNL for some time, uh, a group ostensibly to, um, I guess, advocate on behalf of uh, inshore enterprise owners. Um, So you're transitioning away from that all now uh, into a, a different kind of role. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you're right. I've been. Um, ex- I was executive director of, CNA, uh, of CNL, an advocacy uh, association for enterprise owners, for just about two years. On Friday past, I announced I'm stepping down. The reason why I'm stepping down is because my focus is turning to the creation, uh, which we're on top of. We're um, we're almost ready to announce that the, the creation of a, of a cooperative uh, to represent to represent um, enterprise owners. So um, we're in the 
process of putting together an application. It's very detailed because unlike incorporating a regular company with a cooperative, uh, you have bylaws, for example. That's the rules that a company lives by, but they ha- they need to be written and approved by the registrar before your application is approved. So there's a, a lot of work uh, when it comes to setting up the cooperative uh, in advance on top of um, the industry and, uh, and, and relationships that we're trying to form. We also announced a while ago a letter of intent with Dandy Dan. Uh, Dan runs a, uh, a groundfish operation in uh, Ship Harbor, and that letter of intent was uh, a guarantee of uh, some 2 million pounds of snow crab in exchange for 25% of the company. But that's one relationship that we're looking at. Uh, Dan's still not uh, sure whether or not he, he can actually process this year. Um, we're looking at other relationships with other independent processors. But this this is basically the reason why I'm calling uh, today, Linda. I want to talk about um, – well, snow crab is our biggest fishery, and, and as you know, as your listeners know, it was down a half a billion dollars last year in landed value. Looking forward, groundfish, cod, it's going to be coming on strong because the United States has closed the door on all seafood imports in, uh, from Russia. Um, specifically, and this was just before Christmas, uh, before Christmas, seafood process processed in the third countries like China. So the demand for, for whitefish for cod is expected to take off. The moratorium on northern cod may be lifted after 32 years. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens there. But I want to talk about snow crab specifically, Linda, and two main points. So first off, the fishing industry expected to hear from Elvis Lovelace. Now, one of his hats is Minister of, of Fishery, Fisheries, but he's basically the Minister of Fish Processing. Fishermen expected to hear from Lovelace before Christmas on possible new snow crab processing licenses, also on lifting caps on existing independent local processors, processing caps. But there's been no word, Linda. And the season is about to begin. The crab season is about to begin in about in two and a half months at the last week of March, first week in April. Um, and as I mentioned before, we're in the process of setting a co-op for enterprise owners. Um, but the bottom line is we don't know who the players are going to be yet for the 2024 season. Now, from my perspective, Linda, that's not on the ball. The season is just over two months away, as I said. Elvis Loveless is the same minister who didn't give a second thought in 2020 uh, to, to Royal Greenland, a foreign country moving in as the largest fish processor in the land. He didn't give a second thought to that. But I'll tell you what, Linda, he's taken his sweet time deciding whether to issue new processing licenses to local companies and lifting the caps on existing independent local companies. Now, Lovelace Ryan, has- I know I know you're just getting ramped up here now, but we're up to news time. Oh, Do you been- mind waiting through the news? Yeah, oh, and, no, listen, and, I have no problem. We'll continue this conversation because you're just getting started on a very important topic. So um, oh, yeah. I'll put you back on hold and uh, we'll take you right after the news if you don't mind. Thanks, Lena. All righty. So he's back on hold, uh, I think. Yes, he is. Uh, And uh, we'll be back right after this. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. 
And we're back. And just before uh, the uh, news break, we were speaking with uh, Ryan Cleary, who's in the process of uh, creating a new uh, cooperative to represent enterprise owners here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And we're talking about the um, upcoming uh, snow crab fishery just two and a half months away. And uh, Ryan, you were saying that uh, you were hoping to hear from Elvis Lovelace regarding a decision on new crab processing licenses. You haven't heard anything yet. You were just starting to get into that topic when we had to uh, go to news. So uh, tell us what your thoughts are there. No, you're right, Linda. So we expected to hear from Elvis Lovelace before Christmas on possible new snow crab processing licenses, but also lifting the caps on existing uh, independent local processors. Uh, but like I said before the, before the news, Linda, there's been no word. The season is just about two months away. We're in the process of setting up a cooperative for intra enterprise owners, as you just outlined. But we don't know who the processing players are yet for the 2024 season. From our perspective, that is not on the ball, Linda. Now, Elvis Lovelace is the same minister. He didn't give a second thought in 2020 to Royal Greenland, a foreign country, moving in as the largest fish processor in the land. But I tell you what, Linda, he's taking his, he's taking his time deciding whether to issue new, new processing licenses, licenses to local companies and lifting the caps, as, as I said. So there's no doubt that Elvis Lovelace, the provincial government, has to do, they have to do their due diligence. That's a fact. But they've also got to be on the ball. We're two and a half, we're just over two and a half months away from the start of this season. And again, we don't know who the, who the players are. The, the second topic I want to bring up about snow crab, uh, uh, Linda, is, is fish pricing. So as you know, the, the review of, the, of this province's absolutely broken fish pricing system, it came out in October. The FFAW came out this past Friday with a review of that report over two months later. So it, it took over two months to come up with a review of the review. So from my perspective, obviously, the FFAW is not on the ball uh, either. The, the fishing industry is complicated. But Linda, part of me thinks that the fishing industry is made purposely complicated, uh, complicated on purpose. Here's how, what you have to know about the pricing of fish in this province. The way that fish is priced for the inshore fleet here in Newfoundland and Labrador, basically it does not operate under the free market, under the free market like any other part of the economy, like any other product. Fish is priced through a, a provincial government controlled system. Now, here's how I bre break it down, Linda. And I try to break it down in the simplest possible um, way that I can. And here's what your listeners have to know. All numbers can be manipulated. All numbers, except the only numbers that cannot be manipulated, Linda, are those on the sales receipt, what the seafood actually sells for in the marketplace. From our perspective, any new seafood pricing formula must be based on the actual market receipts. From there, the intra fleet has to decide on a fair market share. Do license holders deserve a 50% share of the market price? Do they deserve a 60% share? Again, Linda, any formula that's not based on the market price that the fish actually sells for is basically a magic formula in terms of numbers and credibility. There is no credibility, and the fishermen get screwed. The reality is that processing companies have been reluctant to produce sales receipts. The provincial government has refused to make them, and that's the line in the sand that the union, the FFAW, has refused 
to draw. From our perspective, it comes down to the price of fish with a formula has to be based on sales receipts. And again, from there, what fair, just fair percentage does the insure deserve? At least 50%, maybe it's 60%. But that's what the pricing of fish in this province comes down to. It's, it's not the free market. It's a manipulation of the system. For that reason, you need, mar- you need actual sales receipts. So that's my message to the provincial government, the ASP, the FFAW, and any in- uh, insurance enterprise owners that are listening to this show this morning. Neither the FFAW nor the provincial government are on the ball, Linda. Two and a half months away from the season, we don't know who the players are, and, 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 and the FFAW comes out with a review of the review. We're not even close to a formula for setting the price for snow crab, the biggest fishery in the land, again, that was down a half a billion dollars last year. Linda, this is not good enough. So how is it done in other jurisdictions? How is it done in New England? How is it done in the UK? How is it done in Iceland, Scandinavia? How's it done across the Gulf, Linda, in the Maritimes? The price of fish is set at the wharf. It's negotiated by the free market economy. Process, when when the, a boat lands across the Gulf, a company goes up, uh, they offer a price, the fisherman either sells it or he doesn't. It's, it's as simple as that. Here, it's uh, the final offer selection system, as you know. It's, uh, uh, to me, it's an abomination of the free market. There are all kinds of numbers are thrown at the public. People don't have a, a clue what any of it means. Ultimately, what you have to look at is the sales price. What does the fish sell for? The sales receipts need to be laid on the table. The only thing that needs to be figured out is what is a fair share for both sides. That's how simple this should be. They purposely make it complicated so, they, so, so, so there's manipulation, and so the, the enterprise owner is screwed on the price at the end of the day. That's and what that- has to change. That's why we're trying to form a co-op. We will form a co-op because enterprise owners in this province need to become a player. The only, the only people that can save the intro fishery are the intro fishermen themselves. A co-op will give them the ability to do that. And uh, do you have many people who are on side who want to join you in this venture? We have um, interest from enterprise owners right around this province. Everything is incredibly confidential. No names can be released because there is a cartel operating in this province, Linda, as uh, uh, a cartel from the perspective of control. Certain companies, the big companies, processing companies in this province, they tell fishermen when to fish, how much to fish. You cannot change buyers. You are punished if you, sp- if you speak out. That, to me, is the definition of a cartel. That cartel, the provincial government ignores the cartel. They, uh, the, the review of the fish pricing system didn't even include the lack of competition, the, the existence of a cartel this past fall. It's an elephant on the wharf. The provincial government just absolutely ignores it. That also needs to change, Linda. We need so- fundamental change in the fisheries of this province for the future viability of the intra fisheries of this province. So is this structure what led to the tie-up that we saw this past summer? I'm sorry? This structure that you're, you're talking about, is that what ultimately led to the tie-up this summer? 
Absolutely. The fish price setting system, final offer selection system in this province does not, not work. The panel sets a price that either the processors ignore or enterprises can't fish for because it's not economical. So the whole system is completely broken. They did a review uh, which basically said, okay, the union and processors, companies, go back to the table and work it out yourselves. And again, two and a half months later, we got a re- the FVW coming out with a review, review of the review and a fishery that starts in just over two months. This is a joke. There are certain realities in this province that everybody needs to face. The, the fish pricing system in this province is broken. Uh, And at the end of the day, sales receipts need to be laid on the table. And the only thing that needs to be figured out is a fair market share based on the sales receipts. Ryan, uh, no doubt we'll hear more from you on this. Uh, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I really appreciate your time, Linda. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. Your thoughts on what he's had to say? I would encourage you to give us a call. When we come back after the break, we're going to speak with the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador, Yvette Coffey. You're listening to VOCM Open Line. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is uh, off uh, for a couple of days this week. We're going to go now to the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador, Yvette Coffey. Hello. Happy New Year, Linda. Same to you. So I couldn't help but uh, notice that um, uh, Health Minister Tom Osborne, he's made a few announcements of late and now saying that um, the provincial government seeing some success with health care recruitment. Over 300 registered nurses recruited during the current fiscal year. Uh, What about the vacancies? Is that coming close to, you know, filling that gap? Well, you know, it's really good news to hear the minister coming out saying there's 300 recruiters. However, we have no knowledge of that. Um, The last we heard was that there was 200 plus recruited from India, uh, but they're not on the ground. There's only uh, between 90 and 100 uh, internationally educated nurses on the ground as of uh, December uh, that we're aware of. Um, we have no idea on the vacancy report. We've been waiting for it now since October. Um, it's interesting that the minister is out giving all these numbers. Um, however, we keep asking for the report and no one will give it to us. Um, quite perturbing, actually. So you said, uh, uh, to your knowledge, 90 to 100 uh, international nurses on the ground here, but do they have to go through any kind of a special program in order to get integrated into the current system? Uh, So most of the 90 plus that uh, are here did not go through um, a formalized, like an uh, expanded orientation uh, program. However, they did have to go through uh, the regulatory body. Uh, for upskilling, um, and some even did the program for a year, year and a half, uh, to become registered nurses in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, the 200-plus that I am aware of from a December meeting that I had that are recruited for um, from India to come here uh, will be going through a more expanded orientation program. However, the regulatory body is actually on the ground um, with the recruiting um Authority uh, NL Health Services, along with immigration, uh, to actually fine tune everything, make sure everyone has the credentials. Uh, but the recognition is there um, by NL Health Services that the orientation 
that I would get as a graduate of a school of nursing here in Newfoundland and Labrador is not enough for internationally educated nurses. So realistically, how long might it take for them to be integrated into the current system? Well, that all depends on how long um, before they get here. Uh, I have no timelines. The last I heard was they were expecting uh, to start getting uh, cohorts uh, of individuals coming uh, this spring, but they were going to take their time. So you're looking at like 12 at a time going to somewhere like Grand Falls or Gander or Goose Bay uh, to make sure that we weren't overwhelming uh, the system and also overwhelming the internationally educated nurses who are coming here and making sure that they had their own support system with them because they had someone from their home country with them. Um, there's got to be a lot of education uh, of not only the internationally educated nurses, but the nursing staff and other staff of the receiving area. Uh, there's cultural sensitivity training. Uh, people need to know uh, what the culture is in India. Uh, in order to prevent any issues or concerns in the workplace with miscommunication or misunderstandings. Um, and there also is, if you're doing education in India and you're doing your clinical in India, you're used to the system in India. You're not used to the system in Newfoundland and Labrador. Our technology, um, our system where we do our reporting, which is Meditech, um, and we have a new system coming online now, integrated capacity management. Um, there's a lot of learnings to be had, and that cannot be done in a short orientation period, uh, which is why they're only going to be coming in small groups, to my knowledge. So uh, 200 recently recruited from India, 90-plus uh, on the ground here now. Um, does that come close to filling some of those vacancies? Where are we with that? Well, the last vacancy report uh, that we had was in April of 2023, and we were still at 750. Uh, like I said, the October report was due in October, and we still haven't received it, despite multiple asks. Uh, I can say uh, the come home year incentive, there were 43 registered nurses who signed on. We don't have the numbers for nurse practitioners. Um, the long-term care incentive bonuses, um, where we got people to go from casual or part-time to take permanent full-time positions, uh, we landed with 67 registered nurses. And uh, the family care teams, uh, there was an incentive announced by government uh, for nurse practitioners to take positions as primary health care providers. And the last update we had in November, there were 31 who had accepted so some progress. Does it go far enough? It is. it is, but we still have a long ways to go if we are going to get where the Health Accord and L recommendations want us to get. With family care teams, um, with more community supports, uh, with long-term care beds being opened instead of these vacant beds not being able to staff them and care for the patients. And if we're going to get to the backlog of surgical procedures and other procedures in the hospital. So that's recruitment. What about retention? I know that travel nursing has been uh, an issue of contention for the uh, nurses union for some time. Um, and government has indicated that it, it is uh, doing what it can to address that issue. Uh, where are we with that? Uh, well, we've actually uh, just asked more information on the cost of uh, travel agency nurses. 
uh, and we are still doing a uh, evaluation of the travel locum uh, pilot that the registered nurses union uh, signed with Lab Grenfell's home. Um, that was extended until January 31st of 2024 so that we had an opportunity to evaluate how successful it was, how um, successful it was in reducing uh, the use of uh, private travel agencies. Uh, however, that evaluation is still not done, and I'm actually waiting on um, a confirmation that this uh, pilot is being extended because anecdotally, um, the department and our health services and Lab Grenfell's own uh, all say it's positive results, but we need that data to confirm. I uh, noticed that Federal Minister uh, Mark Holland was recently in the Capital City region meeting with the Registered uh, Nurses College. Uh, what does that mean, and did you have an opportunity to meet with him? Uh, I actually met with Minister Holland and Minister O'Regan uh, in November. Uh, when I was actually attending a conference up in Ontario and did a virtual uh, session with them both. I must say it was a very good session, very quick. You don't have a lot of opportunity uh, to get your points across, but uh, I can say it was a very engaging conversation. And we did talk about the need for a health human resource strategy for Canada, not just for each province, and reminding them that the Canada Health Act falls under the federal government. And um, just giving money to the provinces is not good enough. There have to be strings attached to that. And there has to be a plan in place for each province in order to receive that money. And I have had conversations with our premier on this as well. And our plan is health court in now. So um, are you satisfied with that, though? Uh, well, you know, I was part of Health Court NL. Uh, the only thing that I objected to uh, during the whole process was privatization of air ambulance services or our uh, road ambulance system. And um, we had many uh, discussions, uh, debates on that. And I said I would never uh, stay and be um, associated with a recommendation for privatization of anything in healthcare. Now, the uh, provincial government last week announced that it had signed a lease uh, for a development of an ambulatory care hub in the old Costco building. That's the leasing arrangement anyway. Um, what about, uh, the first question that uh, most people asked is, what about staffing? Where's that staffing going to come from? The health minister has indicated that uh, a lot of it will be um, existing staffing. So have you been appraised on how this new ambulatory care hub is going to work? Uh, well, we did have conversations with the Premier uh, last year, myself and the Federation of Labour and other union leaders, uh, because we did want to get the Premier on record that we would not be privatizing health care. Um, and we did have a discussion about leasing arrangements uh, for such things as physio, blood collection, outpatient appointments. That's currently happening. If you look at Major's Path here in St. John's, we're currently leasing um, space for blood collection. We're also leasing space for community and public health areas. If you look at Sobe Square, which I always call it, uh, on top of the road, the old cinema, uh, we've been leasing space there for a very long time for offices, uh, community, public health, and actually dialysis. It's not a new phenomenon. It's not a new arrangement. Um, there is no space 
at the health signs or St. Clair's, and I do understand that they are trying to make more space for the emergency department uh, expansion at the health science in particular. Um, and also, I don't know what else they're going to be putting in there now at the health science, but I, you know, as long as it's current staff and current services provided under the publicly funded healthcare system, and somebody else is not getting paid to provide those services, we're okay. Um, I know you've mentioned it, and uh, the president of NAEP has mentioned this whole uh, concern over privatization creep. Is that what you're um, cautioning against here? I am very loudly cautioning against the privatization of any public health care services. You know, an example of what's happening in Ontario is these private uh, centers uh, where they're doing surgeries and procedures. Um, when the surgery or procedure is done, guess where those patients are cared for? They're cared for in the public health system. If they have any complications, infections, uh, blood clots, anything like that, they go to the publicly funded healthcare system to be cared for because if they have to care for them in that private clinic, well, guess what? Their surgeries and procedures are going to be delayed as well. So it actually costs more money. Uh, every time you privatize something and give someone in the public health care system an opportunity to avail of a position in a privately run uh, facility, you are actually uh, taking away from the public health care system, increasing wait times, um, and that's not what we want and not where we want to be. And we do have the premier on record saying that he is not going there. Yvette Coffey, I do appreciate your time uh, this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And Yvette Coffey is the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we're back. We're going to go now to Ted. You're on the air. Hi, Ted. Good morning, Linda. How are you doing? Oh, uh, very good. I don't very often give my last name. I think about six. I've been doing Open Line for probably, I don't know, 60 years or more. Just say Ted, but Ted knows really anyway. I was in Conception Bay North. Right. And uh, I was, uh, the reason I called you is because, or whatever, uh, I think it was Friday or Saturday, sitting at the coffee shop with a bunch of the boys there, men, and, and some women, right? When in walked a bunch of young people, what I mean, young, I don't know, it was a tournament going on, uh, probably 10, 11, 12 years old, right? And the one thing that impressed all of us, there must be a new dress code out, right? Because every one of those young people came in, and I sort of got a little chuckle out of it, right? They were dressed just like the uh, professionals when you see them <laughs> yeah. uh, on television, okay? Yeah, they, they take pride in doing that sort of thing. I don't think there's a, an actual directive for them to do that, but uh, the kids seem to really um, take it seriously. <laughs> well, I can tell you right now. And uh, like I said, <clears throat> I'm associated, you know, as a hockey fan for a long time, you know. Like I've watched a lot of hockey in, that, in this province, right? And it just brought back memories of, uh, years ago. I mean, everybody at the table, I don't only speak for myself, I'm speaking for all the men and women at a couple of tables that were there. 
we were very, very impressed. But I'm going to touch up on something else there before I go. But just want to point out that I remember when I when I worked in St. John's years ago back in the CB, when the days of the CBs in the 60s, right? And most of those players, all of those players, one thing we noticed, they were all well-dressed, okay? And, uh, you know, and uh, but one player in particular, and I know him fairly well, he played with the St. John's Caps. And he was very, very professional in his attire, okay? And, and that was a guy by the name of Hubert Hutton. And Hubert is, uh, I think he's down south now somewhere at golf, right? But my point is this. It just, I don't know, I got such a kick out of looking at these. It reminded me, like, you go on, you watch on television, like, you probably see Yarmer and Yager and all them, and they will dress, right? But a couple of months ago, there was a bit of controversy. I was going to make a call on it, and uh, I said, you know, uh, I, I, I let it go, but I, I don't know if, if that's been settled. But I'm all for young people shaking hands at the end of any sport, okay? Yeah, a lot okay. of people are, yep. That's, you know, I can, you know, I think, uh, even in boxing, they, you know, the referee will say, okay, shake hands and come out fighting, right? But whoever is trying to stop that procedure of young people, you know, not being given the opportunity to shake hands at the end of the world, you're going to have fights in hockey. I mean, any sport, right? You know, it's human nature. But I hope, I hope that uh, the somebody within the league or within sports or somebody that that got the know-how and the power to do that is to keep that rule in place. Okay, that's my opinion on it, and uh, other people might disagree. The only thing I uh, I think might change um, the minds of the powers that be, and and they are implementing it this year to see how it goes. But I think a lot of people have uh, a concern that this could be a long ranging kind of thing, um, and a lot of people do see the absolute importance of that uh, post game handshake. Is uh, uh, the only thing I can see is is make your uh, opinions known. Yeah, now that's a good point, and that's what I tried to do this morning, because I I'll sometimes say to myself, is it the fault of the kid, or is it the fault of the parent or the grandparent, okay? Because some of, you, some of the fans, I know, I, I've been a fan, I've been there, <laughs> I got in my chair a couple, so okay? But the point that I'm going to make here, we were well... Very impressed. I was so impressed I took the time to call your radio station this morning, right, on the uh, dress code and uh, whatever. I hope they stand with that. But, boys, listen, at the end of the day, let's shake hands. You know, it's over, okay? How many times in the NHL have I seen some of the great players in the scrap, right? The Gordy Howes, the Lou Fortinados, okay, and, and the all, all of these guys. But at the end of it, they shook hands and off the ice they were great friends and I would like to see the tradition of shaking hands at the end of a game or any sport in this province continue that's my point Linda. Ted Noseworthy I appreciate your call thank you very much always well talk to you sometime on the on my art gallery it's going good okay oh excellent thank all you right. all right bye bye Linda. Bye-bye. thank you very much for your time and uh, we're going to go now to the caller on line three hello Good morning. How are you, Linda? I'm good. How are you? 
Good, thanks. Um, I'm just calling in. Uh, uh, just wanted to, to spin a conversation off of uh, Ryan Cleary's commentation there. Okay. Uh, commentary. Um, first of all, I'm calling as anonymous uh, because, as Ryan alluded to, the uh, the fear of retaliation and retribution, uh, the whole nine yards is, is, is very real, especially in the inshore fishery and rural Newfoundland. Are you a fish um, harvester or an enterprise owner? Yes, I'm an enterprise owner, and just me alone last year. Uh, lost about $50,000 because companies refused to buy on prices that had been established over the last 11 years. And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking more towards uh, fisheries other than crab. Again, I'm not going to release too many details because I don't want to get identified. Um but what we've seen in the last two or three years as as really uh, it's really especially in rural Newfoundland where believe it or not the backbone of most of these communities is still the fishery, and uh, we we are seeing a, a downward spiral of of free enterprise that actually there is no free enterprise anymore. We're told when to go. We're told if we're going to get paid for X pounds at X dollars. Uh, or if it'll be something less, we're told when a fishery opens, oh, sorry, we're not going to buy that. Um, the, the, the free enterprise is completely gone out of the industry. And nowhere that I'm aware of in North America is is an industry uh, exempt from, from uh, free enterprise and competition. So what we've evolved into right now, uh, we don't have a fisheries loan board. So anytime a harvester wants to upgrade, uh, expand, they have to go to the companies looking for money. Companies then either agree or disagree, uh, accept or decline. Uh, but in cases of exception, grant you the money. You proceed to prepare for your next fishing season. Uh, and lo and behold, now that they've granted you money, you can't sell anywhere else. This is how deep the, the fingers have gone into this industry. Um, I can give you examples of fishers who, who land product and have landed with Company A for the last three years, and then they wanted to change to Company B this year because of better offers or whatever, and uh, only to be told by Company B that, sorry, we can't, we can't accept your fish product because uh, Company A is creating too much animosity. I mean, where is free enterprise gone? Uh, and this is 2024, and we're we're on the we're sitting on wharves and in sheds, uh, getting our gears ready and things of this nature, and and comparing current today to worse than the 1920s. Um, so I guess two things I want to get out of this conversation is, first of all, to all the other fishers out there. It's time for us to stand up, get our voices heard, and demand answers. Um, we've been too long falling under the the control of companies and unions. Um, the union does nothing for our inshore fishery. Um, it, it, it's it's become very desperate in a lot of corners of this province. And let me tell you. And I've had, I've had conversations with some government officials that they're completely out of tune with, with what's going on. And 
they don't really take you serious when you say, what are we going to do in three to five years when there's this massive out-migration and resettlement programs again? Because I can tell you right now, there's a lot of enterprises. After the 2023 season, if the 2024 is a repeat, there's going to be insolvencies and bankruptcies like you've never seen. And nobody's taken this serious. So I guess my first challenge is to challenge the fishers. Let's make some noise. Let's get heard. Let's get some answers. And my second point, I guess, would be to call our government and, and to, to, to ask them, like, wake up. Get your heads out of wherever they are, and let's get on the ball. This is two and a half months until fisheries, the, most of our fisheries start around the 1st of April. And there's not a mention of anything. And and the, in the case of the crab review system, pricing system, that's been ongoing for about four or five months, and we still don't know anything. There's so this is speculation. Yeah, this is your livelihood. Are you optimistic that we'll see any, you know, changes that will, you know, avoid the kind of disaster we've seen over the last two seasons? The only change that can probably bring effect would be, obviously, the government needs to get more involved and more serious. I'm sure no one in that Confederation building sat down and calculated how much tax revenue was lost over the last three years because of the way these companies are executing their business. Uh, The numbers will blow your mind. Secondly, um, if we don't make legislative moves to bring this industry into 2024 with regards to uh, being completely free enterprise and competitive, uh, we're fighting a losing battle. But, you know, our speculations as inshore fishers right now is that this new pricing system for the crab particularly has taken so long because ASP and everybody else is trying to do everything they can to, to either, either uh, um, um, uh, manipulate um, further control, further lobby in order to get their way because they have a dynasty. Where else in this free world can you dictate what you want to buy something at and then hold it for six or eight months and sell it at top market value? Um, It's And again, it's a cartel. So I guess I'm calling on fishers and I'm calling on government um, because in another three or four years, the way the last two or three years have gone, it's going to be a sad state of affairs for a lot of areas in this province. Are you concerned for your own, you know, uh, welfare or economic welfare? Financially, I can't do another year like I did last year. I've exhausted all all avenues of financial resources to stay afloat. Personally, I lost between fifty and sixty thousand dollars. I'm only a small operation. Those types of numbers are staggering to a small independent owner. Um, and uh, it's it's you know I I just want to call on fishers. Let's 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 take over this media. Let's do what we got to do. I'm not suggesting anything violent like you see in the maritime sometimes, but. We've been pushed in this corner for too long, and now they're trying to get another stranglehold on the on the crab pricing system uh, because they know the current one doesn't work. So now they have to review it and review it and review it. And 
but they're still trying to figure out ways to manipulate that system to keep control. Um, It's pathetic that we're talking about this stuff in, in today's age. Caller, I do appreciate your uh, input on this. So we have made a formal request to uh, Minister Elvis Loveless' uh, department to, for him to come on and uh, address some of these uh, serious questions. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Have a great night. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we're back. Uh, we're going to go now to Bill Murphy. You're on the air. Hello, Bill. Good day, ma'am. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Not bad at all. Just into your beautiful city. Now uh, picking up some supplies. Right on. Uh, it's actually, what, what a day! It's a beautiful day, but it's the the the, the witness is it's so hard to see. Oh yeah, on the windshield. Oh, and the glare off the snow is yeah, is, is an interesting day. Anyway, Linda, I'm calling now. Uh, uh, from the t- municipality of Long Harbor, uh, Mount Arlington Heights. And I'm just adding to just trying to push it a little harder to end up on uh, municipal affairs uh, to perk up their ears again. Uh, just last week, there was the uh, most recent council meeting. Uh, I decided not even to go because they have me. Uh, myself, actually, another councillor was, uh, he just uh, satisfied uh, their unjust requirements to for the exhaust these suspension and he got his seat back around the table i still contend that uh, my seat at the table is uh still legally uh mine and the the reasons uh of, for suspension are uh, uh, uh contravening the law anyway um sorry i gotta play a little catch up with you here now because yeah, i'm not familiar ahead. uh you're a member of council and you're not allowed on council? Uh, this week, apparently, they had a, uh, the, the, the last meeting, they had a hired uh, a, a contractor security person banning me from the building, and uh, the RCMP even got involved, and they, they just t- they, they, they just took the side of uh, the, uh, the the chair in the, around the table and uh threatened me with a totally unwarranted uh, charge of mischief. The list is long. So I understand you're not familiar with it, but municipal affairs is. uh, I believe firmly that uh, it needs to go in front of a magistrate. Uh, Right now I'm looking at a letter I got from Stuart McKevley Lawyers, who represents the town, and there's a whole bunch of uh, sections, subsections, and paragraph two says... Uh, or determined by a court to be invalid, which is what I've been asking for all along anyway. And uh, uh, it's Long Harbor is the it's it's so wrong what's going on there now, and they just keep throwing dirt. There's myself and a few other community members now are uh, apparently contravening uh, a, a legislation li- written by. Uh, folks with no no professional background or knowledge of what written legislation they even created and now so 
Anyway, I'm just highlighting and putting it right yeah, out so there. So what specifically is that issue here? Why why are you all of a sudden finding yourself on the other side of things? What's going on? Uh, they're using their written code of conduct uh, le- legislation for the specific municipality based on the uh, requirement from Municipalities Act uh, to, to for uh, municipalities to have a code of conduct legislation. There's only two municipalities in this province currently who have binding code of conduct policies, uh, and I, and I'm sure there's even holes in those. But that's the town of uh, the city of uh, St. John's and the city of Corner Books. Uh, other than that, and the, uh, what they're doing is uh, there's there's. The, the largest budget per capita in the country, and there's this little group doing their thing, and the, uh, not for the betterment of the community the, as a whole, that's for sure. And rather than uh, rather than let the voice the, the public voices be heard, they silence them with just paperwork, t- paperwork, more paperwork, and legislation that they don't. As, as, as it's actually uh, it's, it's funny when you really sit back. I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm none the wiser because I, I guess you're living it, and and I'm an outsider looking in. So uh, you're at odds with your fellow councillors. Is that what you're saying? Uh, not just me. It's, it, there's there's yeah, absolutely yes. Right now, uh, there, there was two of us under suspension uh, based on. Absolutely. On their code of conduct, because each no municipality lie. had to come up with its own code of conduct. So how does that get resolved now? How do you get either back on council or decide your next steps? Well, I'm, I'm, at some point, uh, they're going to have to. But as as per this uh, drafted up uh, letter from uh, the uh, the legal firm that represents the municipality, there's a, the same thing. I, I, I don't know the, the name signed on the bottom. I won't use it. Uh, I, get, I don't know if it's right at a school or whatever, but it's just a whole bunch of subsections and whatnot. Or, but the whole thing, I've been asking this for this for ages, or determined by a court to be invalid. And this is where this needs to go to show these people that uh, you just can't make it up as you go to suit your own self-interest. It's We're a small little community. We should all be getting along. We should be better in our community. Uh, it, it, it could be grown by now, but instead, it's this little group. And I, I, I've been very careful not to uh, make uh, accusations without fact or be libelous or slanders. But the bottom line is, is listen up, municipal affairs. Please put your nose into this. And uh, and as for, uh, I'll I'll write a professional letter back to the law firm, and uh, and hopefully it does end up in court. But I just put wanted to put across the airwaves again because people need to start paying attention. to This little town, it's enough. Is enough, boys. Uh, Bill, I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time, Linda. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, and if anyone on the uh, Long Harbor, Mountain Arlington Heights Town Council wants to address some of what he's saying there, they're certainly welcome to do so. We're going to take a break now for the news with VOCM's Brian Medora. When we come back, uh, Paul Lane is in the lineup. Uh, we'll hear what he has to say right after this. 
Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who's off for a couple of days. We're going to go now to the independent MHA from Mount Pearl Southlands, Mr. Paul Lane. Hello. Good morning, Linda. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Beautiful day out there. It certainly is. It is. Linda, uh, I just wanted to call in again uh, and just uh, speak briefly about, I guess, our health care system. Um, and I did call, uh, I guess, Patty about this perhaps, I don't know, October, no, early November, whatever, uh, as a follow-up to uh, a number of calls that he's received from uh, Mayor Hilda Whalen um, out in uh, Whitburn, uh, who's done quite a bit of research on, um, on uh, r- practice-ready assessments for new physicians. And uh, so just to keep it going, I guess, in the new year, I just wanted to follow up, I guess, with another call uh, on that. And, you know, we're hearing, you know, we just saw an announcement, uh, you know, quite a significant announcement as it relates to a new ambulatory uh, care center in the uh, the old Costco building. And uh, I did take some comfort, I guess, in, uh, in uh, when you spoke to... Um, the president of uh, the nurses' union, Yvette Coffey, and and she seemed to think it was a good idea. And certainly, she has a lot more insight into healthcare than I do. It would seem to make sense to me to uh, try to uh, you know create space in our overcrowded uh, hospitals because there is issues, as you know, in trying to get into the hospitals and uh, you know whether it be parking or space once you get in there or whatever the case might be. Uh, and I do understand they're going to be making some renovations to uh, the emergency departments, I guess, to expand them. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about expanding emerging de- emergency departments, one of the things you have to ask yourself is, well, why are we expanding them? Now, I understand we do have an aging demographic, which is going to contribute perhaps to, um, you know, more use of health care, and, and that would seem to make sense. But a lot of the reason why we're expanding uh, the emergency department is because the place is blocked all the time. Uh, you can pretty much go there when you like. The place is overcrowded. There's uh, patients on the stretchers in the hallways. There's people with nowhere to sit and so on. And that's not just because of the aging de- demographic. A part of the reason uh, you know, why that's the case is that I think there's um, a, there's a lot of people, uh, perhaps, who don't need, really need to be in the emergency, but because they have no family doctors, uh, that's where they end up going. And, of course, the other issue is is that uh, there's not adequate staffing in the emergency department, so, therefore, there's people go in there, and where you would perhaps like to see a nice turnaround where you go in there for, you know, a couple of hours or whatever the case might be, uh, go in, be seen, go out, and then as you're going, people are cycling through, we have people sitting there for 10 and 12 and 14 and 16 hours taking up space, waiting just to see someone. Of course, the crowd continues to build and build and build as the day goes on because there's more people coming in than are, than, than are being seen and, and, and going out. So, you know, really it comes back to the whole issue of the physician shortage that we do have in the province. And I do appreciate the fact that Minister Osborne, and I will give uh, credit where credit is due. I've done it many times. I'll do it again. You know, I know that Minister Osborne has done a lot of work on recruitment and retention, and I give him full marks for that. 
arguably that work should have been done uh, uh, long before Minister Osborne took over that portfolio, but I won't get into that now. But the fact of the matter is he has taken a lot of initiatives, but a lot of those initiatives are going to take time. Um, you know, you can increase seats in the in the medical school, as an example, but you still have to wait for graduates to come in, go through the program and graduate before you see the fruits of your labor, so to speak. So some of it's going to take time. But one of the things that uh, Mayor Whalen has done a lot of research on, I guess because of the issues in her community with the Whitburn Clinic, uh, although it certainly benefits us all, is she's done a lot of research on this whole concept of, um, you know, how many physicians would we have or do we have physicians that want to come here and work that are unable for some reason. And what she has determined, and Minister Osborne has been on and acknowledged this, is the fact that there are a number of doctors uh, that uh, are wanting to come here, but they're unable to get their, their, their license to practice because part of the licensing practice, uh, uh, licensing procedure, is you have to go to MON and do this, uh, there's a program for a few weeks uh, we have to come in and there's a practice ready assessment, basically where they, you know, where 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 it's a program where they basically assess you to ensure that you meet all the qualifications and you are, you know, that you're capable uh, and qualified to work in this province. Um, and there's only a limited number of seats at Mon for this, and I think it I think it only happens like it's only like once a year. I stand to be corrected. But I think it's only like once, maybe twice, but I think once a year that they'll put a group through. And there's a limited number. Um, I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, maybe 14, 16, something like that. And perhaps during normal times, when we had lots of doctors and we weren't facing the crisis that we are now, perhaps those seats were enough to cycle new people through to replace people who were retiring and leaving. But we're in a situation right now where these are extraordinary times, where there's a significant shortage, and we need doctors yesterday. And so I know Minister Osborne indicated that I believe they've added two additional seats, if I, I think, to that practice-ready assessment. They've made room for a couple of more. Um, but in other provinces, when they found themselves in this situation, um, if the university wasn't able to accommodate through their medical school, then they would go outside um, and uh, set up, you know, uh, an additional program outside of the university to try to get doctors through. Obviously, it would still be done by qualified people, would meet all the standards, but it would be an additional, um, you know, uh, site set up where these could happen so they could do more than what they were doing. And so Minister Osborne did acknowledge all this um, before Christmas and indicated it was something they were looking at. So uh, I would certainly like, I think it would be, if you have Minister Osborne on again, it would be nice to get an update as to where they are on this program, on these practice-ready assessments, because if we have a number, because we definitely have a shortage, and if we have a number of doctors who were trained outside Newfoundland Labrador who are quite qualified, but the only thing stopping them from working here is this practice-ready assessment that they're unable to avail of, then that's a big problem, but it should be fairly simple for us to put something in place to correct that so we can get them here working sooner rather than later. Do we have confirmation or, or stats on the number of doctors, I suppose, waiting on this practice-ready assessment? 
I don't have the numbers. I, I've heard Mayor Whalen on, and she said, I, I, I don't want to put words in her mouth, um, uh, Linda, to be honest with you. Perhaps she might. Uh, I'm sure she's listening because she's an avid listener, and she may call in today or tomorrow. Um, uh, but I, I know she's been on, uh, I, I think it's over 100. I, I could be wrong, but, but like, it was a significant number of doctors she's indicated um, that, that, you know, that are waiting to do this practice-ready assessment. And Minister Osborne himself has indicated that it is an issue. It's a legitimate issue, and he said he was going to look into, you know, whether or not he's going to set something up outside of Mon or whatever, I don't know. Uh, he did indicate it was something that he acknowledged and he was going to look into. So it would be nice to get an update uh, on that because, like I say, uh, you know, you know, we can we can you know add new facilities like they're doing at the old Costco. We can expand emergency rooms and so on. We can do all those things from a physical uh, facility point of view. But at the end of the day, we need to have adequate people to staff these facilities. And you know, if the only thing we're going to accomplish by spending millions of dollars on moving things around and expanding um, and expanding an emer- emergency departments, if the only thing we're doing is that we're just basically just making a larger space so that we can hold more people to wait longer, then that's not really accomplishing anything. Ideally, uh, as I say, from an ideal point of view, if we had enough people staffing the emergency departments and we had enough family doctors so we could avoid people going there to begin with, then we wouldn't need larger spaces. And you just hit the nail on the head. More family doctors and more access to uh, ERs, especially in rural uh, communities, because it's a regular occurrence now for ERs to be shut down on the weekends because the staff is just not there. Absolutely. And even even having proper staffing, even in the large ones here in St. John's, like I say, you know, I, I understand... Nobody expects, you know, nobody expects to go to uh, to a, an emergency and you're in and out in five minutes. I, I don't think anyone would expect that as being realistic. And we also understand that there has to be priorities that just because you're waiting somewhere for, you know, a significant period of time, uh, you know, if somebody comes in and they're having, you know, they're having a heart attack or they're having a stroke, well, I'm sorry. The fact that you were here first doesn't matter. Like, if this is life and death for this person, you're going to have to wait it doesn't matter that you were there first i mean i think anyone with any common sense understands that concept but at the end of the day you have to ask yourself if somebody goes to a hospital i mean i've i've gotten calls from patients that you know were or senior citizens cancer patients people in all kinds of pain and discomfort who have gone to an emergency department and have you know go in there say at eight o'clock in the morning and at 10 o'clock at night they're still waiting and at some point in time, they just give up and say, you know what, I'm just going to have to try to put up with the pain or discomfort I'm having and go home and maybe try again because I cannot I cannot possibly stay here any longer. I've been here for 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours. I don't think that's uh, – like, I, I don't know what the benchmark might be nationally. It would be nice to know, but I don't think that's acceptable. I think we have to do – better than that and like i say simply expanding the size of a waiting room is doing nothing to uh it might make it a little more comfortable that everyone has a chair to sit in but at the end of the day you still shouldn't be sitting in a chair for eight hours 10 hours 12 hours 14 hours you should be able to cycle through a lot faster uh than that and the only way you do that is if you have enough 
doctors and, and nurses and other support staff there at any given time so we can cycle people through at a reasonable rate. And that means healthcare professionals, it means doctors. And so we have to do everything we can to recruit more. And if this practice ready assessment is something we can do, if we have doctors waiting in the queue that want to practice here, but they're not unable because of this issue that, you know, with, with Mon or whatever the case might be, that they're not able to facilitate enough seats, then if we need to create more seats outside of Mon, as they're doing in other provinces, then that's what we need to do, and we need to do it ASAP. So I encourage uh, the minister to do that, and if he comes on again, it would be great if we could have an update. Paul Lane, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Linda, and you have a great day. You too. Okay, bye. We're going to take a very short break. Patricia's waiting in the line. We'll speak with her next on VOCM Open Line. And we are back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off for the next couple of days. And as is usually the case in the final hour of the program, the lines do tend to loosen up a little bit. Everybody wants to get in early. Uh, so if you had been uh, trying to get through earlier and you were having some trouble, now is your chance to give us a call. We're going to go now to uh, Patricia. You're on the air. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, not too bad, thank you. Uh, I was listening this morning to uh, Minister Byrne. Is Minister Byrne, right? Yep. Yeah. I was listening to him talking about housing. And uh, somewhere along the line, there's something gone wrong. Because I know right now of two families born, reared here in this city. And... Uh, they are both working, not making a whole lot of money, but they are working, and uh, they can't. They have their own home, but they're in fear of losing it because the price of homes, the price of everything has gone through the roof. So, And then he mentioned that we welcome the Ukrainians. Yes, and I welcome Anybody that wants to come here, it doesn't matter who or what country, I welcome them. I know some Ukrainian people here, and, and they're, most of the ones I know are fairly well-educated, and they'll work 24 hours a day if you ask them to. But the thing is, what is wrong with our governments that they could not see 20 years ago, 15 years ago, that the, this province would have a shortage of people. Now, they weren't smart enough then to do that. I don't know if that was the Liberals now or the PCs offhand. Yeah, because well, the democratic tre- uh, the uh, demographic trends, sorry, for have been uh, screaming this for years. Yes, yes, but... But what about, uh, uh, that's one family, and I know another family who will soon be put on the street. There's nowhere for this gentleman to go, nowhere for him to go. He'd be sleeping in probably Boring Park. There's some shelters, but this person should be looked after because he is our own flesh and blood. And I really believe that we have to look after our own. 
we're not doing so well, a good a job as uh, um, we should be. The people that come from Ukraine and other countries are fairly wealthy. Not, not all of them, but some of them are fairly wealthy. They come over here, they buy their home, and they're in the workforce. These are your professional people. Great. But our own people... We turn our backs on. You didn't hear Mr. Byrne talk a lot about the poor people this morning. You didn't hear him talk about uh, people who have nothing to eat. You didn't hear him talk about anything like that. He had a fine, lovely speech about people coming here to live, and they find their own homes. Well, to find the house of this city, you're talking anywhere from three hundred to 500000 You might get a townhouse for 200000 I know. I've been to the housing market all my life, and I, and, uh, I know somewhat, not everything, but I know some of it, it's the way it works. And if you go in to rent, and uh, you put your name down, or you are invited in to look at an apartment, if they find out that through no fault of their own, they may be on income support, no, they're not going to pick those people for the apartment. And, and these people are working people who will get their rent. They'll get their rent every month from the government, right? They're not making They will get what they need to survive. But no way. Someone in the hierarchy, is it a hierarchy? Anyway, excuse me. Uh, these people get apartments. So you tell me. You tell me, how come our own people here, you know the story. I don't have to go into the story with you because you're pretty well in tune to the story. So so why is it Linda, that, that these people have to uh, live on the streets? And they're not all drug addicts. And even if they are drug addicts, Linda, that is a disease. That's a disease. And, and in 15 years' time, uh, there will be... We'll be talking about this. We'll be talking about drug addiction. There's a whole variety of things that are coming together at the same time that are uh, cr- helping to uh, create this crisis, uh, housing yes. crisis. And uh, it's it's right across the country, by the way. It's, uh, yes. It has to do with affordability. It has to do with availability. It has to do with... Um, a variety of things and a lack of foresight. Let's be clear. You raised that right off the top. Yes. Uh, yes, I, I know I'm right, but apparently now they're building, they're building, uh, I don't know, 48 or 58 duplexes there off Black Marsh Road. And th- uh, they can't find a carpenter in this city. Not a carpenter in this city to be found. So the, the building of the houses are very slow. And they're supposed to be putting another, another 200, I think, within the next couple of years, the same duplexes. And, and that will ease it off. But I never saw it like this in my life. Everybody, everybody is talking about it. And, and there's so much coming at us all. That where do we turn? Where could I help? What could I do, right? 
Absolutely. Oh, we've help. reached a real, we've reached a real, I don't know, turning point here or a crux of some kind, if you will. Um, governments seem to be willing to address these things, but these things take time and it seems to be a little too little too late. Yes, and, and that's fair, and I totally agree with you in that if, if someone had been smart enough years ago to predict this, uh, and maybe a lot of people tried to, I don't know, but it happened, and here we are now stuck with this crunch, and Mr. Byrne sending out a beautiful message this morning to people. He's in Winnipeg. He's sending out this beautiful message telling people, oh, everything is okay in Newfoundland. No problems in Newfoundland. Ukrainian people, they don't stay in the hotels only for a couple of weeks. Good. Our own people should be looked after first. When our own are looked after, you look after other people second. Patricia, I appreciate your call this morning. We'll see what others have to say. Thank you very much, Linda, for taking my call. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, and your thoughts on what uh, Patricia's had to say, by all means, do give us a call. We're up to news time now with VOCM's Brian Medore. Um, when we come back, we hope to speak with you. We do have lines open. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. We have lines open now is your opportunity to give us a call. You just heard in VOCM News that the uh, the province has a new ride-sharing service. It's very first, as a matter of fact, since the new legislation came in place. And it's uh, locally based. Uh, Cabby is the name of the company. And I'm sure you'll hear more about that in the coming days. Uh, we've had a number of calls about uh, health care and the like. But uh, right off the top, we were talking about Terry Ryan, uh, suiting up for the uh, Growlers on the weekend. And I don't know if VOCM's Brian Medore is there uh, to uh, join me for a few minutes to talk about uh, Terry uh, celebrating his 47th birthday and being called up to join the to join the Growlers, which is, um, you know, it's getting a little long in the tooth for a uh, hockey player and the like. It's uh, not uh, uh, easy on the body playing hockey and all of that. But uh, Brian, I'm sure, has a few stats on some players who have suited up at older ages than that. Is Brian there? Well, I think the Gordy Howe situation a few years ago, uh, when he, what was he, 70? I'm not sure if he was 70 or 80. Uh, kind of a publicity stunt, just thought he could, uh, you know, actually be on the ice for uh, whatever it would have been, six decades, I think. Uh, that was not a publicity stunt for Terry Ryan. They no, were needed some they players. Needed him. <laughs> they did, yeah. absolutely. Uh, but certainly he's up there. But no, there uh, have been situations. Uh, Gordy Howe played actively, professionally, I think, till 50, something tells me 56. This is just all off the top of my head. I'm not doing any Googling on this or anything. Uh, we have uh, some players have uh, played well into uh, their 40s uh, in hockey. That, that's a little different in baseball. Baseball, you can go till, what was uh, Phil Necro? I don't know, Phil Necro might have been 50 and still pitching for the uh, the Braves or the Yankees, I think, was his last team. So uh, baseball is a little different. But uh, hockey at 47, uh, I tell you, he, he is, he's 
got to be in pretty darn good shape to be on the ice with the growlers. For sure. And not only that, but I mean, when you're playing that level of hockey and you get involved in anything, any kind of physicality, I mean, you're less willing to take those knocks and hits, aren't you, uh, as you get older, because it has an impact on... On the other aspects of your life. Yeah, and, and Terry's not a, you know, a monster guy by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, certainly has that uh, the tough shell there, no question of that. <laughs> Always demonstrated that uh, aspect, uh, you know, of himself in uh, when he was with the NH- in the NHL, Montreal Canadiens, uh, wherever he was, and always demonstrated the, the tough aspect of it. And uh, again, yesterday, too, uh, no hesitation in dropping the gloves. And giving the fans what they want, I heard the crowd going mad for that. Oh, <laughs> anytime that happens, uh, fans, you know, I've been down there before. You've been down many Growlers games. I uh, haven't seen them. I didn't see them this weekend. I was going to go down Saturday night, but I uh, chose not to instead. Uh, and uh, wished I had gone down the weekend now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that can bring out the, uh, let's just say, the reaction from the fans. That's where they really get into it, you know, when a couple of guys start to slug it out. Like, everybody watches. You, tur- you turn your head, whatever you're doing, you know, you might be kind of looking at something else, but uh, when, when a couple of guys start slugging it out, yes, sir. And more likely to happen, I suppose, in a one-off situation. So he was signed to a, uh, a contract for just the one game. Is that right? Could he be called up again? Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, depending on their the health of the uh, team, you know, they're going on the road, I think, uh, for the next weekend. But uh, they do play most of, I think, their last bits of the season, the last half, if you will. Uh, they have a lot of home games because they've had a lot of road games for the first half of the season. But uh, they do play a lot of home games after that. And uh, people are wondering, uh, if you go on social media, well, why would they pick a 47-year-old when they could have gone to the, you know, one of the senior hockey leagues, Avalon East, the West Coast, what have you, or uh, perhaps even the junior league, St. John's Junior. Uh, well, there is a reason for that because there's a, there is a Hockey Canada rule, which uh, Ben Murphy explained this morning, a Hockey Canada rule that if someone, say, from the Avalon East League, for example, did... Uh, get the call and go play with the growlers once you go professional after january 10th even if for one game that's it you're done you can't go back to amateur hockey the senior league the junior league you're finished for the rest of the year so that's why they you know they didn't have a large pool to pick from i'm sure there are some retired recently retired senior hockey players perhaps uh you know maybe a few years younger but uh that's that's why the pool was fairly limited in that regard and could happen again if that stomach bug doesn't get resolved i suppose well i guess that you know you're in close quarters there we've seen it in our newsroom before linda you know uh once somebody has something it's uh it can spread quite quickly and easily because you do operate in such close quarters as does a hockey team of course uh, Brian Madore, thanks for this. Great chart. All righty. Uh, we're going to go now to uh, Bob, Mc, Bob McDugan. I'm sorry. I couldn't get my head, my mouth around your name, Bob. I'm sorry about that. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Same to you. Yes, it is McDugan. It is Bob McDugan. And what's on your mind this morning? Well, i got a lot to say, uh, but I'm going to keep it short. But hats off, Terry Ron. Keep your head, keep your stick on your on the ice, and keep your head up because uh, these young fellas they're quick. But uh, hockey's hard on the body. One, you know, it is indeed. It is. It's really hard on the body. The 
I mean, a couple of these guys, until I got to play, I had the opportunity one time to get on the ice with a very professional team, and these guys, they can move like, like transport trucks, and they're, they're big, and they're fast. It gets around, so if you're getting a body check at 30 kilometers an hour, you really feel it for someone who's 250 pounds. But uh, way to go to Iraq. Uh, one other thing, uh, I got a question about Mr. Osborne and the $82 million he's spending on the Costco building. Right. Uh, uh, right. I mean, uh, I, I've been waiting to see if anyone phoned in, but no, no one's been phoning in. Uh, there's empty provincial buildings everywhere, and it's eighty-two million dollars lease a year. The building's not even set up. I mean, there's so many hurdles that need to be crossed to get that up to par, to, up the code, let's say. And I'm going to relate that up the code because I got a sewer man down in my house out on the road. And I'm after paying $30,000 to the city of St. John's. And they come out with a notarization of, I can't get myself, can't get someone else to do it. The city has to do it. And uh, the whole list of health and safety precautions and permits and fees that got to be done. I got to wait till April to get it done. So, I mean, I think that $82 million could have been spent better elsewhere. Like, it's a good idea. And that's $82 million over a 20-year lease. It's a 20-year lease? Yeah. And who is the lease out of, is another question. Yeah, well, the owners of, of the, the Costco building. Okay. No, anybody know who they are? Uh, I believe it's uh, KMK. I stand to be corrected on that. Someone can uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Right. Uh, so. They call it the uh, NL Health Alliance, but the, the owners, the previous owners of the building, they may have sold it subsequently, uh, were KMK. But, um, yeah, a new NL Health Alliance. Uh, how come they didn't put the eighty-two million toward uh, a PET machine, which we don't have here? Do we have, do we even have a PET machine here? A PET scan? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'll have to check on that. We got we got a what, two MRI machines here. I mean, we can update our own with that kind of money, you know, and make things. I mean, I had a friend who had a heart attack out in Carbonair. They had to send him into Elsage to get the proper work done. I mean, Carbonair Hospital needs an upgrade. Do they have an MRI machine? No, it seems like a very politicized waste of money to me, but I don't know. I'm just saying, no one, I find today no one's resisting or asking questions, and if you do, you're labeled. So, I, I, but I'm putting it out over the years to the people, like, and uh, which leads into immigration. I love immigration. You know, sure, bring them in, give them a free shot. I mean, boys, they're living in a hard part of the world, but at the same time, we got an out-migration occurring. Why are our people leaving? How come we're not invested in ourselves first? I mean, people are leaving New Berlin in droves. The ferry is full with people leaving. And, uh, you know, you can bring the new guys in great, and I hope you all get bonuses and you spend tons of money on it. What about the people that are dying in the streets that I see every day that are our own people? Just go for a run downtown. Go for a walk. Go for a drive. I mean, I mean our society, I don't know what it's coming to. People need to start to stick them together and start asking more questions. This was on my mind today. Bob, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. All righty. Bye-bye. We're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with Chris and hopefully you. And we are back into the last few minutes of the show. We're going to go now to Chris. You're on the air. Hi, Chris. Hello. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I always seem to get stuck at the end of the thing, but that was my fault. <laughs> right <on. laughs> Uh, anyway, I wanted to comment on the emerge department. Okay. Uh, I had the 
don't know what to call it, whether it's an opportunity or the uh, nightmare of having to go through it. They're back a little while ago, first time ever. I'm not from St. John's area. And uh, it's nothing against the staff. They're just overworked. They're totally, they're totally overworked. They're seeing. They're, they're, one thing I learned uh, was after four o'clock in the evening, the doctors are cut in half and emerge. Um, anyway, everybody got everybody gets triaged, and the problem with the system is what uh, the people, uh, the, what's plugging up the emerge is what we, what I would call the fours and fives. So I worked as a triage nurse, and. Uh, what was plugging up plugs up the system is the fours and the fives. Fours and fives are basically GP stuff. Is what they are. And uh, if if this new place that they're putting up out there is not open twenty four hours around the clock, it's not going to change anything. At all. Because what's going to happen is, like I was told by people in there, after four o'clock, doctors are cut in half, and that's when the people starts coming in. And it was the same place, same way in the place that I worked in too, triage. After four, because there's no clinics open up, and they can't get into them, right. so they all come to emerge. So, what would a four and a five be? Typically, four and fives are basically like uh, urinary tract infections. Uh, probably got a, a minor flu or something like that. Uh, you know, belly pain or. Uh, or- yeah, kind of, kind of things like that. Now, they still need to be investigated. But the thing is, too, if they're going to be having these people up there, because sometimes the belly pain can turn into more than just belly pain. Right. And uh, so the thing is, if they're not going to have some sort of diagnostics up there with them, it defeats the purpose because then they got to come down to emerge or come down to the hospital and be seen. Well, it's, to my mind, um, and, and uh, I, I hear your point on that, but with this ambulatory uh, care clinic, uh, I'm wondering, because they're still saying, if you're not sure, go to eMERGE. And what often yeah. happens is, I mean, we've all been in that position. Oh, yeah. We say, you know what, I've got a really strange headache, or I've got some belly pain, or there's this really yeah. strange thing going on with my leg right now. I don't know yeah. if I've injured it or what, uh, or it's broken, or, you know, whatever the case may be. So yeah. you're not going to take a chance. You don't know. You're not an, a professional. You go to emerge. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. And like say, and I was in there, and it was my first time in there, and I did not want to go in there. I'm a cancer patient receiving radiation, and the last thing I wanted to do was go in there and be around people. And the place when I was in there, they were coughing, they were hacking, there was gastro on the go, and oh my God, it was just. A nightmare, and I was afraid. Yeah, terrifying for, for someone patients. in your position. Yeah. Yeah, and then had to stay extra long, and it's and it's not it's not the uh, it's not the staff's fault. It's just that they're, they're overloaded. I had to stay, and I got blood work done, and then I had to get the blood work repeated again because it was too old. Really. Yeah. So, I had to get repeated again. So, so you know, how long were you there for? Oh, I went in at twelve and day. Got in at twelve and night. Twelve hours. Yeah, a cancer. And I was having trouble breathing, and I knew what was causing my trouble breathing. I knew what it was, but it's just that I need to get treatment for it. And uh, you know, and unfortunately, this is the only place I could go because I'm not from St. John's. I didn't have a GP there. So, but uh, there's there's a lot like there's a lot I could say. I really couldn't, but we just don't have the time here. That's why at the end of the day. Uh, but and so and you don't mind me jumping onto another topic? No, that no, no. are going to put up there. What they need to do is when all, because they're going to have social workers in it all there, and that's great. Uh, what they need to do is when they're uh, interviewing these people for these places, they want to see how many of them are, you know, they got a few wits about them, and hire them to help take care of the place, train them and help them, and let them stay there and pay them. 
And like, that could be part of the program. I'm not sure. Yeah, oh, maybe, yeah. I don't know if it is, but I'm mentioning it here now. And that's A lot of them are, there, are really good advocates. Yeah. yeah. This is the first foot up, you know. This is their first foot up, probably, that they need. Because I've heard so many times before, I don't have a fixed address. I don't have a fi- and, and this is legit, you know. Yeah, I've met these people. I've, I've, I've met them. I've, I've, I've donated stuff to them. And I've had chats with them, you know. And, and the, the ones I chatted with seem to be reasonable people. You know, they're in a bad situation. But yeah, but uh, Linda, yeah, the, the, going back to the emerge again, it's just, uh, it's it's overloaded. They need to get the threes, and the, the fours and the fives out of it because the only thing you should be coming into emerge department are threes, twos, and ones. Twos and ones usually come in on ambulances anyway. A one is a cardiac arrest and uh, two, a two is about to, and a three is urgent. And what and about... That's what I was- and what about the location? I mean, I, I know the old Costco building is a is a huge space, so that makes sense on that level. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the cost of renovating that building for those needs, I'm not sure, you know, what that those numbers are, or figures are going to end up looking like. Um, right. But um, with the minister even saying, you know, if you're not sure, go to Emerge. I mean, how many people, <laughs> realistically, I wonder, are going to drive past the Health Sciences and drive past yeah. the new St. Clair's? No. Uh, to go out to the East End. Yeah, and this is the thing I'm saying about being able to get everything done out there. If they can go out there and get their blood work done or get their X-ray done, if they like they got a flu or something, I can get an X-ray out at at, at the let's say the Costco building, uh, and I can get an X-ray so that they can see what it is. It might be just a minor chest infection, and I can be started on some antibiotics. You know, it's, it's like they, they need to follow through, and it needs to be 24 hours around the clock because there's no point if it's till eight, eh, eh, four in the afternoon or eight in the evening because after that you're all going to flood in to emerge. Is what's going to happen once they don't get seen, and it's not going to change nothing then, other than for that 12 hours they're open or whatever it is. Yeah, interesting right. points, uh, Chris. And maybe, like you say, these fours and fives will be able to go to these. And I, I mean, a, a big part of the space that's taken up at the health sciences and St. Clair's are, are you know, uh, people waiting to see their specialist for this or that and the other thing. And if they can go to yeah. this other place, that frees up an awful lot of space. Yeah. And oh, yeah. parking there's, there's, and all the rest of it. When I was there, the hallways were lined off everywhere. Oh my God! It was just something else, and like I was standing up in a lineup with uh, with people waiting. Now I got to say one good thing for the for their health science though, for their emergency department. It's not one good thing. They got a lot of good things. They're just overworked. Uh, is that the uh, their system of triaging is better than what I, it is in pla- places I worked uh, because they triage first and they register second. Right. Where I worked, we registered first and triage second. So you might be sick and need to be seen fast. And but because it's registered first, what happens is then that they, uh, you know, the, the thing is they just put it on the inside and triage room as they're being done. But when they're triaged first, they say, oh, let's let's pull this guy in because that's what they done with me. They pull me in right away, done blood work, EKG, chest X-ray, everything on me right away. Yeah, because of my history and that, you know. But uh, yeah, there's a like I say, so they do have some good points. You know, the emergency department, and like I say, they can get rid of, not get rid of them, I shouldn't say, but uh, relocate the fours and the fives to out there and have it 24 hours around the clock. That's the only way to do it. If they're not going to do it, it's not going to work. Chris, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, one last point, Linda. Yep. Uh, there was a man saying something about a PET scan being in another hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, only place PET scan is too is in St. John's. Okay. 
Gotcha. I've been in it. I know. So, Corner Book is supposed to be getting one, yeah. and there was talks with the new hospital. I don't know if it's a hit yet, but uh, that's the only place there is one. There's no other place. All right. Appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Take right. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to go to Kenny. You're on the air. Hi, Kenny. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Not bad. Uh, I'm after being uh, back and forth to the doctors. Uh, I was up in Halifax. And they sent me back, and uh, I've been back and forth to the hospital where I'm located on Wabana Hospital, and uh, they still won't give me nothing for the pain. Okay, uh, what, what's going on? I got a, a tumor on my spine. Oh dear. And I, they just they took a light, a, a, light, a lump out of my stem, out of my side. Uh, I got 40 staples for that. And now I'm waiting for a call to go back about me uh, up on my spine. And uh, I'm after being to Health Science, St. Clair's, well, the grace is gone now, after being there. And they still won't give me the right medication. So do you have a GP? A regular uh, doctor, a family doctor? Uh, yeah, but yeah, but she ain't doing nothing, nothing for me. Okay, and what about your surgeon? Uh, I'm actually calling him, and he he never called me back. Oh my goodness! And so you're left without a prescription for pain? Yes. And you can't get one anywhere? Yeah, it's a t- it's a really tough uh, situation for a lot of people. Um, Kenny, unfortunately, we're completely out of time, but we'll leave this for tomorrow for uh, conversation for another day and see where uh, where that whole system is. Because I know you're not the only one that's facing this kind of uh, problem right now. Yeah, well, the only way to get the right medication is is buy it on the streets. Yeah, and you don't want to be at that, do you, Kenny? No, ma'am. No. Um, All right, I appreciate your call, and we'll see, uh, only because it's the complete end of the show here, but we'll see what others have to say. Really appreciate it, Kenny. All right, ma'am. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, tough situation uh, indeed, Uh, and uh, we'll have to leave it for another day. Uh, Tim Powers is going to be sitting in tomorrow for VOCM's Patty Daly. I'll be back on uh, News Talk tomorrow afternoon. Um, For today, though, uh, Richard Duggan is going to be hosting News Talk. Uh, Stay tuned for that. I know he's got his head down working on some great things. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day.